So tonight, we get to continue on in the series that we've been doing called Organic Faith. And basically what we said is, you know, a lot of people are eating organically, right, because they care about what they're putting in their body. And so they're trying to get the contaminants out, get the additives out, get the garbage out, and instead eat in ways that are natural, right? And we said, well, that's interesting. That's important. I can see the value in that. But what if we did that with our faith? Like, what if we looked at our faith the same way what, and said, like, we want a faith that's pure, we want a faith that's natural. We want a faith that's uncontaminated. And so we took a step back and we said, well, what is, what is shaping my faith, right? And how do I make my faith an organic faith, a pure, uncontaminated faith? And so what we said throughout the series is the, the, really the one thing that uh, certifies our faith organic is that the foundation is the Bible. We said, this is one of the most important beliefs here at Grace Church is we believe this is God's word. Like, we actually believe that this is true. And as something that's true, as God's word, we believe that it's trustworthy and it's dependable to build our life upon. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at, we kind of started out this series looking at what we believe, our theology, what we believe about God and his relation to the world. We started off talking about the Bible. And we said, what do we believe about the Bible? And we said, that is the foundation for the rest of our theology. If we get that wrong, we mess everything else up. And so that's where we started. If you miss it, I'd encourage you to check it out online because it's so important to the rest of what we believe. So we started off with the Bible. And then last week, we talked about God, the, the light little topic of who is God, right, in 35 minutes or less. Not easy to do. But what we said was that God eternally exists, eternally exists forever and ever as one God, one essence, one being, but three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, one essence being, three persons. In some way, God is tri, and in some ways, God is one. He's united. God is a tri-unity. God is a trinity. And so we kind of summarized exactly what it is we believe. I like how a guy named Mark Driscoll said it. This is kind of where we camped out a little bit last week. And we'll throw it up on the screen. This is what he says. He says, God is one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of the three shares fully the one divine essence or being of God. God is not simply unity, but eternally exists in rich, loving fellowship. I'm sorry, rich, loving fellowship as the one and only God. And so we dig in, dug into that a little bit. And we said, man, that's kind of tough to explain, you know? Like, how is God three and how is God one? And we looked at some different metaphors and we said, well, you know, it's kind of like an egg and you got a shell and you got a white and you got a yellow. It's kind of like an apple. It's kind of like the air. It's like all these things. And those things can be helpful, but they all fall short. Every one of those metaphors falls short because it's tough to understand, Right? The Trinity, how God exists as triune God, is tough for us to grasp because every other life form, every other form of life that we encounter in this world is one essence and being and one person, right? That's what we all are. We're one person, one essence. And we, so it's, it's, it's tough to understand. It's tough to explain. It's tough for us to communicate. And yet, an honest reading of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, says that this is who God is. Like, this is who God, how God reveals himself to us. And so even though it's hard for us to understand, even though it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, we accept it. And then we step back and we go, I'm in awe of it. Like, he's so far beyond us. 
And then we ended our time last week looking at some of the qualities of God. And we dug into a passage, it's interesting, the passage in the Bible that is most quoted by other passages in the Bible is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which sounds like sort of an obscure verse. But what it is, is God describing who he is to us. God describing who he is to us. And so we looked at some of those qualities. We said, man, he's good, he's loving, he's holy, he's righteous, he's just, he's beautiful, he's perfect, he's all of those things and so much more. And he says, this is who I am. I am so far beyond you, so far beyond you, and yet I love you, and I want you to know me, and I know you. I want us to have a relationship. I step back, I think about that, and I think, golly, it's crazy. You know, like he is so far beyond us. Who am I? Who are we that this God of the universe would want us to know him, would value us that way? And so that's what we talked about last week. So two weeks ago, we talked about the Bible. Last week, we talked about God. And throughout this series, we've said this, and this is really important. As we're digging into our faith, our theology, what we believe about God and his relation to the world, we're not just doing it for ourselves we said a foundational verse for this series is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So a guy named Paul writes this to his protege, Timothy, and this is what he says to him. He says, Timothy, young pastor, he says, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. You'll save both yourself and you'll save other people. He says, God, watch your life and what you believe, because you make an impact on other people. Our lives, whether we believe it or not, whether we we agree with it or not, whether we care or not, our lives, what we do and what we believe has an influence on other people, especially people that we love. And we say that you and I have the power by what we believe and what we do, the way we live our life, we have the power to influence, to impact other people's eternities forever, forever and ever. So he said, boy, it's really important as we dig into this. First of all, it's worth our time to dig into this to know exactly what we believe because we have conversations with people, right? So it's worth our time, not just for us so that I know what I believe, I feel good about what I believe, not just for me, but so that when God presents the opportunities, I can communicate that with other people as well, right? So this is sort of where we've been at throughout this series. And tonight we're gonna dig in, uh, we're gonna kind of pick up where we left off last week and we're gonna dig in to one of the persons of the Godhead a little bit deeper. We're gonna dig into God the Son. And so next week we're gonna dig into God the Holy Spirit, but tonight God the Son. And let me say this again, I, say, I think I've said this every week, um, there is so much here. Like when we think about who the eternal God the Son is, who became flesh and blood in Jesus, there is so much depth there. Like there's so much that we could talk about. And I'm gonna do, I'm gonna, I'm admitting to you right now, I'm gonna do a disservice to it tonight, okay? Because we only have so much time. But rest assured, there is so, if you're interested, if you have questions, there's, there's a lot of things that I could recommend to you to dig in deeper, to understand it a little bit better, okay? So I'm just like, that's my caveat at the beginning, all right? So tonight as I was praying about this, like, God, boy, this is so vast. I don't wanna, I don't want to do you a disservice tonight. Like, where do you want me to go with this? Here, here's where I think is the best plan for us to go tonight. Here's sort of the skeleton of where we're going. Here's the first question. Three questions. Who is God the Son? That's where we're going to start off. Who is God the Son? Why did he come? Why did God the Son come? And then the question that we've been asking every week, so what? Like, what difference does it make in our lives today? So who is he? Why did he come? Why did he become flesh and blood? 
And so what? What difference does it make? That's where we're going to go today. So let's jump right into it. First question, who is God the Son? I'm going to give you kind of three parts to this first question here. Okay, three parts. Here's the first one. God the Son is one of the three eternal persons of the Godhead who is himself fully, completely, and totally God. It's kind of where we spent our time last week. God the Son is one of the three eternal, forever and ever, persons of the Godhead who's himself fully, completely, and totally God. We're going to dig into that in a second. Second thing, he took on flesh in Jesus Christ, okay? Third thing, he remained fully God and became fully man. This is where we're going to spend our time tonight, okay? So one of the three eternal persons of the God's head, completely, totally God, he took on flesh in Jesus, and as he did, he remained fully God in becoming fully man. So let's quickly take a look at these. The first one, I think I can be real quick, because really, this is what we dug into. We talked about last week when we talked about God existing as a trinity. We talked about how many times the Bible talks about God the Son being completely and totally God. And I think I can summarize it with just one little passage here in the New Testament. It's at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. This is what it says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors throughout the pro- through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That means all things are his. And through whom he also made the universe. He made everything. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Think about that. He's... He's the heir of all things. He made the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. All of those things are God, right? The Son is completely and fully and totally God. Again, if we believe what the Bible says, and if you have more questions about this, think back on what we talked about last week. If we believe what the Bible says, it shows us that God the Son is one of the three eternal persons of the Godhead who is himself fully, completely, totally God. That's the first part, right? We looked at that last week. How about the second part? He took on flesh. So he's the eternal God, part of the Godhead, one person of the Godhead who took on flesh. You know the story, right? We just celebrated it at Christmas. Let me me read it to you just quickly. Let me read this to you. Don't don't flip there. I want you to just listen to this. Try to listen with fresh ears. This is in Luke chapter 1. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He'll be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin, how could this be? The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. And the Lord, a couple other things happen. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be fulfilled just as you said. 
Then the angel left her. Somehow, in some way, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and by the very power of God, power of the Most High, this virgin girl would become the one who would carry and ultimately give birth to God the Son in a dirty old manger, right? In the most humblest of circumstances. How in the world could this happen? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. We don't know. No one knows how God did this, but that day, the eternal Son of God, who always was and always will be, became flesh and blood in Jesus. Crazy. How did it happen? I don't know how it happened. I know this. This is interesting. About 700 years earlier, a guy named Isaiah, we talked about the, him a little bit last week, a prophet named Isaiah wrote, and he talked about this, and he prophesied that this would happen he said, this is what it says in Isaiah 7:14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? God with us. 700 years earlier, God used Isaiah to write what God was gonna do. A virgin, how in this, how, like, how do you think they took that? A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and the son will be God with us. It's fascinating, isn't it? By the way, again, Isaiah also prophesied, he also predicted that this Messiah would be tortured, that he would suffer, and that he would die for the sins of the people, which I'll talk about here in a little bit. So somehow, in some way, God the Son, one of the three eternal persons of the Godhead, who is himself completely and totally God, became flesh and blood almost 2,000 years ago as Jesus Christ, Mary and Joseph's son, and so the Son of God, God the Son, has always existed, but about 2,000 years ago, he became flesh and blood. Make sense? I like how a guy named, a theologian named Martin Lloyd-Jones says it. He says, a person, I repeat, did not come into being there at Jesus' birth. A person didn't come into being at Jesus' birth. This person was the eternal person, the second person of the Trinity. When a husband and wife come together and a child is born, a new person, a new personality comes into being. That's not what happened at the incarnation. Listen, the Son of God is eternal. God has eternally existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. God the Son has existed forever and ever. 2,000 years ago, he took on flesh and he became one of us, right? But he, did, he has existed forever and ever, okay? That's the second. How about the third part of our, kind of our nutshell definition of who, who God is, who is God the Son, okay? We said he remains fully God and he becomes fully man. He remains fully God and he becomes fully man. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that when the eternal God the Son became flesh and blood, he retained his divine nature. He was still completely and totally God, and yet he took on a human nature. He became completely and totally human. So when he became flesh and blood, he still stayed completely and totally God, divine nature, and yet he also became completely and totally human. And so we have, go back to the Trinity, go back to last week. We have God eternally existing as three persons, but one God, right? Somehow he's three in one. He's a Trinity. 
Jesus is one person of the Godhead with two natures, a divine nature, which he always had, and now a human nature when, that he took on when he became flesh and blood. Make sense? It's called the hypostatic, the hypostatic union, if you want to look it up. Fascinating. Google it sometimes. It's interesting. It's crazy, right? Like, you step back, you go, this is, like, how do you, how do you get that? How, do you, how could you say that this person, Jesus Christ, who is born, is completely and totally and fully still God, and yet he's completely and totally and fully still human? Like, how could that be? What would lead you to believe that? Well, it's a good question. Well, let's, let's kind of take it piece by piece. What would lead us to believe that he's fully God? Let's dig into it a little bit. Well, he's called God. We talked a little bit about this last week as well. He's called God multiple times in the New Testament. In the New Testament, God is referred to, when it's translated God, God is referred to as theos. These are the Greek words, theos and kyrios. That means God and Lord. Many times those two words are referred to as God. Those two words are also referred to in Jesus in the New Testament. I'll give you an example. Probably the, the clearest example is in 2 Peter chapter 1. So this is this is. Uh, Jesus's disciple Peter writing, okay, and this is what he writes. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that, so he's calling Jesus God, Theos, through the righteousness of our God, Theos, and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of our Lord I'm sorry, knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Like right there, he calls Jesus, it's actually a very interesting verse. He calls Jesus theos, he calls him God. But then later in verse two, he actually refers to God the Father there as a separate person and he refers to Jesus as Lord. It's fascinating. So he's called God. Why do we believe that he's fully God? Well, he's called God numerous times in the Bible, Old Testament, I'm sorry, New Testament. He claimed to be God. This is interesting. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, very truly I tell you, so he's talking to some Jews. He says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Do you remember what I am means? In the Old Testament, when Moses said, what's your name to God? Do you remember what, what God said? Tell him I am has sent you. It's Yahweh, right? And so when Jesus says, before Abraham, he's talking to these Jews, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. That's a very clear reference to him saying he was God. In fact, they knew exactly what he was saying because they wanted to stone him right after that. Interesting, right? A little bit later in John chapter 10, he's even more clear. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And you think about that and you go, well, that's a little, like that could mean a lot of different things. I mean, I feel like I'm one with my wife. Does that mean like we're one, one? Well, they knew exactly what he meant because again, Jesus says to them, he says, uh, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you want to stone me? They want to stone him again. He says, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Like very clearly, Jesus claimed to be God. Why else do we believe he was fully God? It's interesting. The demons believed he was God. Numerous times in the New Testament, when Jesus casts out a demon from somebody, they say, he, that he is the son of God, that he is Messiah. In Luke chapter four, it says, moreover, demons came out of people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and he wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. 
So why do we believe he's fully God? Well, demons believe that he was God. How about this? He did things that only God could do, right? Jesus did things that only God could do. I'll give you a list. He turned water into wine, John chapter 2. He healed disease and sickness, Matthew chapter 4, among other places. He calmed a storm. Who does that? Matthew chapter 8. He multiplied bread and fish. He takes, he actually did this twice. He actually takes, he takes a little bit of bread and fish, and he turns it into enough to feed thousands and thousands of people, Matthew 14. He knew all men some way. He knew what was going on inside of people's minds. He even raised somebody from the dead, John chapter 11, his friend Lazarus. And if all that's not enough, his closest friends and family died believing he was God, right? Like think of the 12 apostles. I think it's fair to say every one of them died believing Jesus was God himself. Even Judas, who betrayed him, was overcome when he realized what he had done, right? And he killed himself. But the rest, they all died believing that he was God. His brothers I mean, think about that. Like, what would it take for your brother or sister to believe that you are God? It'd take a lot for me. I don't know if you know this, in the New Testament, two of the books, James and Jude, are written by Jesus' brothers. Did you know that? Two of Jesus' brothers. Die, they die believing that their brother is the very God, son of God, God the son. I like how a guy named C.S. Lewis says it. He said, listen, Jesus is either a liar, like he's deceiving people because he's saying these things, he believed these things, or a lunatic, he's a crazy man because who thinks that they're God, right? Or what's the word? The Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He is what he says he is. There's no other options, right? It's not enough. To, it, it, there's no way he could be just a good man, just a good teacher, and yet, so, so we look at him and we go, boy, he's fully God. He does things that only God can do. His, his family believed that he was God. Demons believed he was God. We also say, I think he's also fully man. Like he did things that only men could do, right? Like what? Well, he was born, like literally, physically born. We just read about how uh, Mary became pregnant with him. He had a, a body, a human body, right? We read about that in Luke 2, other places. He grew and he developed physically and intellectually. Read about that all throughout the early part of the Gospels. He had brothers and sisters. We said that already. He got tired. He slept. He got hungry. He had a job, right? He worked as a carpenter. He went to parties. He loved his mama. He bled, right? Like all those things are human things. And then how about this? People saw him as a man. I mean, that's how people perceived him. In fact, many people saw him as only a man. It's interesting. In Matthew 13, it says, Jesus, coming to his hometown, began teaching people in the synagogue, and they were amazed. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this, isn't his mother Mary, and aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? When, where did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at them because they saw him as just a man. So Jesus didn't do many miracles with them, his hometown. I like how a guy, uh, Mark Driscoll, I've quoted a couple of times. I like how he says it. He says, Jesus is nearly universally recognized as a great moral example 
insightful teacher, defender of the poor and marginalized, humble servant to the needy, and unprecedented champion of overturning injustice with nonviolence. However, the divinity of Jesus is most frequently and heatedly debated. Simply stated, the question as to whether Jesus Christ is fully God is the issue that divides Christianity from all other religions and spiritualities. Guys, many people, maybe, maybe most people that we talk to believe that Jesus existed, most people. And they would say, yeah, he was a, he was a great teacher. He was a great leader. He was a wise man. He was a great person. Although it's interesting, I was reading a little bit about this this week. There's this renewed push in popular atheism today, guys like Earl Doherty, Richard Carrier, Tom Harper, who dispute that the historic, that Jesus ever existed, that the historical Jesus ever existed. And they're writing and they're trying to convince people that he's just a mythical concoction, like, like Zeus or like, like Odin's son, Thor, something like that, right? that he didn't actually exist. And many people, some people, I don't know about many, some people are reading what these guys are writing, which are baseless, in my opinion, reading what these guys are writing and then just sort of blindly accepting it, which reminds us again of the importance of our initial discussion and why we can trust what the Bible says. Like, why would I trust what the Bible says compared to some 21st century atheist? We'll go back to our discussion a couple weeks ago. There's lots of reasons to trust that what the Bible said is true is actually true. I, and if you have questions about that, you know, like about uh, did, did Jesus actually exist, I got some great books that I could recommend you, some by guys that are not Christians, but are just like, listen, there is, there is overwhelming evidence that, Jesus, that a man named Jesus existed and did a lot of this stuff, okay? So if you have questions about that, um, I'd love to help you with it. But even in spite of all that, most people would say, yeah, you know, I've heard of Jesus. Je- Jesus is cool. He seems like, seems like a great guy. Seemed like he was a really good teacher. Seemed like he cared about people. Seemed like he really tried to do good, really tried to, to help the poor, pity what they did to him, right? Most people that we come across would admit that, would say that. Listen, believing that Jesus existed, this is so important, believing that Jesus existed isn't a Christian belief. That doesn't make us a Christian, believing that Jesus existed. Believing that Jesus existed and was a good man who did really good things and helped people and was wise and taught profound wisdom, that's not a Christian belief. That doesn't make us a Christian. Believing that Jesus is God the Son, fully God and fully man, that's what separates Christians. That's what separates Christianity from everyone else. Believing that Jesus is God the Son, one of the three eternal persons of the Godhead who took on flesh and yet remained fully God and became fully man. This is another one of the most important, the most essential beliefs in all of Christianity. And to reject that, to reject that and go, eh, I don't think so. I mean, he's a good man. He existed. He's a good man. To reject that is to separate yourself from the last 2,000 years of church belief. And every all three major tracts of Christianity, Protestant, Orthodox, Catholic, all of them precisely agree on what we just got done talking about. He's the eternal God, son of God. 
He took on flesh, right? He became one of us. He remained fully God and became fully man. This is what the church has believed about Jesus for the last 2,000 years, and it is one of the most important beliefs that we have here at Grace Church. It's what leads us to that very first, look up there. I think it's that one over there. What's our very first value? Help make Jesus make sense to people. So important to us. So that all, all that's kind of the first part of our question. I want to quickly, I'll just, and I'll be quick. I know my time is short. I want to quickly talk about the second two questions. We talked about who is God, right? How about this? Why did God the Son come? Who is the Son of God? Why did God the Son come? Why did he become flesh and blush? <laughs> flesh and blush. Flesh and blood, right? This is a really important question. We're going to flesh it out more in the next couple weeks, but let me boil it down to two things right now, two things. Why did Jesus, why did God the Son come, take on flesh in Jesus? Well, he took on flesh, first of all, to show us how to live. He's a, he's a model for us. He, at becoming a human being like us, he experienced all of the stuff. He had to deal with all of the stuff that you and I have to deal with every day. The pain, suffering, the sorrow, the joy, humor, fun, distractions, difficult people, busyness, all of that stuff. He experienced all of those things. And as he lived through those things, he did it sinlessly. He did it perfectly. And so he stands out as an example to us. Like this is what it should look like for us to live as human beings in this world because God the Son became one of us, fully human, experienced all of that stuff, and he's our example, he's our model. He's also, I would, I would argue in that, he's our advocate. You know, like when we're going through hard things, we go, I can, I got, Jesus can relate to me. He experienced pain, he experienced heartache, right? Like we can go to him in a really powerful, unique way. So first reason, why, why did he come? Why did God the Son come? Well, to show us how to live. Second reason, this is so important, why did he come? To die for us. To die for us. Just, just chew on that for a second. God the Son's ultimate goal in coming was to die. It was to give his life for us in one of the most painful, horrific ways possible and miserable agony, physical, emotional, and spiritual. He came with a very, a very narrow, specific purpose, to die. The perfect, sinless, eternal God of the universe came to die for you and me so that he would take what he didn't deserve, our punishment, and he would give us what we don't deserve, forgiveness, grace, righteousness, that's, that's the reason that he came. Think about that. Think, like, think of the implications of that. We're going to talk about it here in a second. God sent, God the Father sent God the Son with the express purpose of coming to live and show us how to live, to be an example, but ultimately to die, to suffer and die for you and me. Think about that. There's a, a passage I alluded to earlier in Isaiah, written again 700 years before Jesus would come, and it's this prophecy, and it's talking about what this coming servant would do. And uh, Ruth, I'm going to have you just stay on this slide, and I'm just going to kind of jump through this real quickly because I know my time is short, but I want you to just listen to this. 700 years before Jesus would come, 
This is what Isaiah writes through the Spirit of God directing him. He says, this, this servant, this suffering servant, was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He goes on, we all like sheep have, been, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. He goes on and says, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. It says, for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, of us, he was punished. It goes on, it says, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Then it says this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. He poured out his life unto death. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Guys, listen to this. The triune God's plan from the very beginning was to send God the Son to live and suffer and die for you and for me. It was his plan to crush him, it says, and cause him to suffer so that the guilt of our sins would be taken away from us so that you and I wouldn't get what we deserve, but instead we get everything that we don't deserve. Forgiveness, grace, freedom, hope, righteousness, and eternal life. It's powerful. And guys, for, for time's sake, let me, let me jump to the so what question, because this is so important. This is so important for us. And you're going to get a chance in your groups to, to kind of talk about, like, what are the implications of this? Like it, it, I'll tell you what, this week, it just blows my mind when I think about the love that God must have for me in sending his son to suffer and die for me. It blows my mind. You're going to get a chance to talk about, like, so what difference does it make in my life in your grace groups? But let me say this. Let me just kind of conclude with a, a quick story. Let's see if you can relate to this. When I was, uh, when I was in my teens, I, I started to rebel a little bit, which is probably normal, you know, right? Like, probably most people do that. I was a pretty good kid growing up. But some, somewhere in my high school years, I, I kind of wanted to start doing the bad thing, you know, I, I think I thought chicks dug bad guys, you know what I mean? So I'd start to, do, I, want, I wanted to kind of be a bad guy, and I thought about, you know, cheating and, on, and school stuff, which is a big deal when your parents are both teachers, and, or stealing things, or going to a party and drinking. But invariably, I'd start thinking about my parents. Like, invariably. You know, I started thinking, I want to do all these bad, this bad stuff, you know? And then I started thinking about my parents. And probably, in all honesty, my first thought was, if my parents found out, I wonder what they would do, right? What kind of punishment would be? But then, always, I started thinking about how much they loved me. And I started thinking about, like, if I did these things and they found out how deeply it would hurt them, you know? Like, how deeply it would break their heart. And knowing that, like, I knew, I knew how much my parents loved me. Like, without a shadow of a doubt, I have great parents. I'm very blessed that way. I knew without a shadow of a doubt how much they loved me. And knowing that, knowing how much they loved me, knowing how completely and unconditionally I was loved by them affected what I did and affected how I lived. It had to, right? 
being loved by other people affects us. When we, when we realize it, when we recognize it, it, it has to. It has an effect on us. Guys, if you get nothing else out of the sermon tonight, get this. God the Son took on flesh for you and for me to ultimately to suffer and die because you are so very loved by him. You are so very loved. Apart from any performance, how good you are or how bad you've been in your life, apart from any of that, he loves you absolutely, totally, 100%, beyond what any of us could ever imagine. And when we recognize that God loves us that way, we got to do something with that. And I think we only have two choices. Either we, we can ignore it, which really is rejecting it, saying, I, I don't care, which is maybe the worst thing that we could do to somebody that loves us. Think about loving somebody deeply, completely, and they go, I don't care. It doesn't make a difference to me. It's the worst thing that you could do. It's one of our options. God loves us completely. We can go, I don't care. Or we could embrace it. And we can say, I love you too. I accept the love that you have for me. I see how valuable I am because you say I'm valuable. And I can change my life because of that love. And guys, that's what I want you to be encountered with tonight. The notion that you are loved so completely, so totally by the God of the universe that he would send God the Son to die for you. What are you going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? We could ignore it and go, God, I don't care. I don't, I don't give a rip. That says something to him. Or we could go, I embrace this. There's no middle ground. There's no fence walking with this. My prayer God's prayer, God's heart, I'm sure of it, with each of us, is that we think about his love, the depth of love that he has, and we go, I love you too, and I want to get to know you better, and I want to live my life for you. I know that's what God wants for each of us, and that's what I want for us too.